Hello everyone. It's a beautiful day in Aberdeen today and I'm thrilled to have you back again. Well, it's the time of the year that we in the Northern Hemisphere look to fly away somewhere for a holiday and soak in the sun. And it may be happening for a few of us, but for many of us, including myself, I am still st stuck in a state of uncertainty whether to book a holiday or not. I'm hopeful that things will get better soon and we will all get to escape somewhere. Fingers crossed. Finally, we do see some light at the end of the tunnel, at least for some of us. Okay, I'm delighted to bring another close friend and an awesome podcast on embracing differences today, and his name is Chris Turner. Chris is actually many things. He is an emergency medicine consultant, but he's also famous for his work on civility and his famous TEDx talk, Civility Saves Lives. And today on this podcast, we talk about many things, including leadership, rules, procedures, processes, the need for bending rules and procedures. But most of all, I love this Chris's idea of civility saves lives. I think you'll like it. Let's just hear from Chris. First of all, let's just talk about your story. Who are you and how did you get into this space? Right. So I'm Chris Turner. I'm an American medicine consultant from Coventry in England. I am not from England. You might be able to tell that from my accent. I am originally from Edinburgh. I'm a comprehensively educated um, Edinburgh man. I went to a school called Craigmount, which is a cool school, and went to university in Edinburgh. Spent a long time before I settled into a career as a postgraduate in, in medicine. Lived in Australia for three years, got an experience of other cultures did four years of psychiatric training and that was utterly eye-opening. The way that we train psychiatrists involves an awful lot of supervision, an awful lot of sitting down and discussing other people's perspectives, not just slipping into believing that our beliefs are always right. And it was a, it was a challenging and interesting time. I had an absolutely amazing mentor, a guy called Alan Beveridge, um, when I worked in Dunfermline and I intermittently get a message back to him to let him know that I still think in the the unusual way that he, I mean, he was utterly formative in it, you know, the, the challenging way that he got me to think about how we, how we interact with our patients and what we can do for them. And then I ended up in England and um, I ended up doing emergency medicine. Um, which is a very different world from psychiatry, uh, has an awful lot more kind of uh, rapid uh, <laughs> rapid satisfaction. Psychiatry takes a little bit longer. But I was also involved in governance. And within healthcare, governance is how we try to create and maintain quality throughout the system. And it felt to me like a really key component of trying to be as safe as we could be. And I suppose if you, if you sort of spoken to me at the beginning of my time in governance, which I was doing alongside being an emergency medicine consultant, uh, at the beginning, I was all about process. I was all about being able to define how it is that we do what we do and making that as replicatable as possible. But I sort of gradually came to, to recognise that we had all these brilliant processes in place and yet things were going wrong and then people, we were finding people weren't following the processes. But then we found, if you looked a bit harder, that 
the, the processes weren't being followed by anybody. They were simply work as imagined. And the, the work has done looked completely different. So the, there's an awful lot of energy at times goes into creating and sustaining the fiction that people do the work as it's written down on paper within healthcare and, and I guess within other, other worlds as well. And that, that led me into this sort of space of going, okay, so if we're not doing it as it's written down on paper, what are we doing? And then beginning to understand that we're bending and flexing. We are constantly, we are constantly adapting with each other in, a, in an attempt to get the best outcomes for patients. And that, you know, that we are cogs in a machine, but we're more than just the cogs in the machine. We're the lubricant. The human behavior is either grit or it's oil. And each one of those relationships really matter. And that eventually led me on through, really through some work that I did with Trevor Dale, who runs a company called A-Trainability. Trevor Dale introduced me to the work of Christine Porath, and she'd been doing this really formative work on the impact of incivility on performance. And through that, I started reading papers. Now, I had an advantage in reading the papers, and the advantage is that I had worked in Stoke, where I'd been taught to critically appraise. And critical appraisal of papers is hard work. You know, reading other people's academic work and trying to understand what they were getting at and where the flaws might sit within their logic and their methodology. That's really hard work, but I'd done it for many years. So I was able to read quite a lot of papers and get my head around what other people were doing. Then I discovered that that, that world of behavior is actually it's very welcoming. And most of the people who function within it, if you write to them, they will write back and then they'll give you a call and then they'll have a chat with you about stuff. And thought this is fascinating. I always kind of thought as academics has been way up there. And it turns out that academics are extremely happy, as you well know, to, to, to have a chat about their work and their areas of expertise. And I got into that and I got chatted to people and very gradually sort of came to this recognition that behaviour mattered. It mattered in a quantifiable way and it mattered in a way that we weren't talking about. And from there... Um, from there, well, I had coffee one day with Joe Farmer, who is who was my uh, my junior doctor. He was the junior doctor I worked a year or two previous to when we had coffee, and we were just talking about this stuff. And we were talking about an incident that happened in theatre, where he was in theatre with a colleague of his, the the registrar, so a couple of layers up from him, when he was a very junior doctor. And they, he really liked this registrar. They they had looked after Joe when Joe was working on the on-calls. And in theatre, the consultant, and it's a very competent registrar, the consultant, the attending equivalent in America, um, really just lost it. Lost it at the registrar, who apparently hadn't done anything particularly significantly bad. But this, the surgeon's, the surgeon got more and more hacked off with them. And what Joe described was of them starting with the, but but trying to explain what's going on, but, and the other person's just coming on at them and on at them and on at them. And gradually the registrar getting quieter and quieter and quieter till they were just standing there and not doing anything. And Joe was telling me this story and 
we got into talking about well, what do you think was happening there, and we had a discussion about you know amygdala overload. We we had a discussion about you know when people treat us that way, how we drift into just pure threat response and what we are actually you know our lizard brain is kicking in and we are saying okay this looks like this might get really really unpleasant here do i need to be ready to fight and what happens to our working memory how it gets compressed in those settings and how we aren't able to function and joe was really interested in this and we sort of pushed the idea around and then he was saying but people don't know that and he's dead right We'd grown up in a medical culture where you learnt by humiliation, where undermining people was standard, where leadership behaviours, um, well, leadership was leadership was regarded as the the right to behave as you like, rather than the responsibility to get the most out of the people around you. And Joe said people should know about this. Um, and so we had to think we had to think about it, and we thought we would start a campaign. But it wasn't anywhere near as grandiose as that. What we actually thought was we'd do a couple of talks and see if people were interested. Um, but I'm interested in branded and branding and marketing. And we, we were thinking, well, what are we going to call this so that people might know that, you know, might get an idea about what this is about. And we actually started off with lots and lots of thoughts about the don't be. So we started off with don't be an arse. Don't be a dick. I mean, it really doesn't matter. You, you can choose, you know, don't be a whatever primary or secondary sexual characteristic you choose, right? Don't be a that. And that's quite appealing to us uh, until we started thinking about the learning from excellence movement. And Adrian Plunkett starts, started the learning from excellence movement up. And when when they started that up, they didn't, say learn from mistakes they said look at the good stuff what are you here for and both joe and i knew that if we called it don't be an arse what would happen was that people would point at others and go don't be an arse it's bad for it's bad for um patients but none of us come to work to be that guy none of us come to work to offend other people none of us come to work to have a fight the job's hard enough as it is. You don't need that to be added into the top of it. And then we thought, well, what's more pro-social? What, what do people really come to work for? And they come to work to, to be excellent. They come to work to do the best job they can. And so rather than saying that, you know, don't be something, we went for a pro-social message and we went for civility saves lives. And... I think it turned out to be quite a good move on our part because we weren't saying to people, don't be something. We were just we were just saying to them, hey, guess what? There's a bunch of new information out there and that perhaps how we've, the, the behaviours that we've had role model to us, how we've been expecting to behave as leaders and within healthcare, perhaps that's not as helpful as we thought it might be. And perhaps there's another set of behaviours that we could be thinking about that might help us to get the best out of situations. And that just seemed to get loads of traction very quickly, um, which, was, which was lovely. And then things kind of exploded a bit when I got a chance to go. I did a TEDx NHS talk. And from that, I got invited to go and um, 
talk at TEDx Exeter. So TEDx Exeter in the world of TED Talks and TEDx Talks, it's the, the, the fourth most popular um, TEDx venue in the world, which um, when you go and take part in it, you realise why. I mean, the amount of effort that those guys go to to make that an outstanding event is incredible. And from that, you just start to get more and more views of the talk online. And I mean, it's it's not stratospheric or anything. that You can view it through a couple of different channels and it's just over 100,000 times that people have looked at the talk. But given what I'm talking about is, I suppose, slightly niche. I'm pretty happy with that. And that just led to a bit more and a bit more and a bit more momentum and the opportunity to go and talk to people in all sorts of interesting places. I think civility does matter. I think behaviour matters. I think for me the key the key message is that behaviour matters. And we all behave all the time. Every time we interact with each other, we're behaving. And don't believe that that doesn't have an impact upon the performance of the people around you. And the, the bottom line to this is that when we treat each other in ways that feel disrespectful to the recipient, so intent is kind of not important here, unfortunately, when they feel disrespectful to the recipient, that has a direct negative impact on the ability of the recipient to perform. And that's kind of the key message. But, and it's more significant in two settings. So the more complicated or complex the environment is, the more this seems to matter. Because in complicated and complex environments, we have to be creative. We have to think about what the best solution in a given situation is. Also, the other thing that's sort of come out in the last year or so is some work by a guy called Gaddy Gillan. Um, and his work shows that, what, well, what he did was he looked at people and where they sit on the empathy spectrum. So Simon Baron Cohen shows that we have empathy in a normal distribution. What Gaddy Gillan did was he said, what happens to people at each end of the spectrum when they are exposed to incivility to somebody else? So they're just witnessing incivility. And what he found was that the people who are at the low level of, um, of empathy, that they weren't particularly affected by watching incivility to somebody else. But the people who are highly empathic were significantly affected by watching incivility to other people. And that's important in all sorts of levels for me, but within healthcare, it's specifically important in one way. And that is this. If we, are, if we think that the people that we want to be delivering care are people who do care, and generally those are the more empathic people, it is a very powerful message, Chris, and uh, uh, I, I talk a lot about dignity. I know there's a difference between civility and dignity, but allow me to share an experience with you, which is very similar to what you just said. It resonates very well. This goes back many years ago. I used to sail on a ship, and I was, I was a, a young junior officer on the ship. And we were sailing out from a port in China, and there is, there is a rule on the ships that you must not sail out without the port clearance. You, you get a clearance document or a certificate handed to you by the port authority, which then which basically means that you have cleared the dues for this port before you enter into the next port. So the next port of call, you will be asked for that paper. So I was young and naive at that time, and I just received that paper last minute from the port agent, 
put it in my in my office and I thought I will give it to the captain later on once the ship sails out. And to date, I don't know what happened to the paper, you know, whether where it got swallowed or, or and so I, I went, the ship sailed out, I went to the, my cave and I couldn't find that paper. So I, I innocently went to the captain and said, I have misplaced that paper somewhere and I don't know where it is. And he got a little bit furious with me in that moment, but he didn't say much. So that was about noontime. We departed from the port. I told him and I thought the situation is over. He will send a ma message to the next port and we'll try and sort this out because to me, this was not the end of the world. We had facsimile on the ship. There were means of communication and something could be done about it. But no, it was eight o'clock at night. I, I took my watch at night, independent watch. And we were, we were going, uh, we were uh, coasting along China with, with so many fishing boats in that area. It was full of, the horizon was full of fishing boats. And this guy comes up on the bridge, the captain, he was, you know, I think he was in his late fifties and uh, he was known to be a very uh, terrible captain actually. And uh, so he asked me, he said, so, so do you know where you might have misplaced it? I said, I'm trying to think about it. I, I honestly can't. So the, the, the conversation started into kind of interrogation, you know, how you, you went about uh, placing it, where you kept it. And to the point that he became abusive, he became abusive and he started to, to abuse me. I have never heard those words in my life uh, uh, ever. Or I had never heard those words in my life. And he abused me for a continuous 45 minutes or so. And that, you know, that, that went on and to the point that my brain was completely dead. Uh, I, I could not respond to anything. And I think at the end of it, when he was stepping down from the bridge, he kind of knew what he had done. So before stepping down, he said, I think you should just forget about it now and keep it at the back of it and concentrate on the traffic and, and make sure that the ship does not collide. And to date, I wonder, there's not been many studies done in this area to say what is the relationship between undermining somebody's dignity and impacting upon their performance. And you just brought back that thing through this example. So I still struggle to understand why. And, you know, days went by, months went by, years went by, and I entered into this, this, this profession, safety inspections and audits and whatnot. And I do see, I see a relationship both ways. One is the inability to recognize that how we demean people, how we, 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 we dehumanize them in many ways, and how that impacts upon you know, the operational safety in that particular context. But you see something else also from the other end, which is that how instruments of safety, for example, you know, things that are supposed to, to improve safety, just culture, uh, uh, rules and regulations, how, they are, how these instruments are actually used to dehumanize people. So it works both ways. So you will often come up with a rule or a very unrealistic regulation or a just culture mechanism or a process or a tree or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you find ways to dehumanize people through those through those tools. And I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that, Chris. So many different thoughts, different. Um, I, I suppose, so, so what, where I'm going to go with this for a minute or two, um, is to, to look at some work that um, Suzette Woodward introduced me to. And it's, um, it's work by um, Vincent and Amalberti from a number of years ago. And they were looking at different systems that exist within healthcare. And it 
where I'm going to relate this back to is I'm going to relate it back to rules and our reliance upon rules. And I might get the titles of the systems a wee bit wrong here, but there's the ultra-reliable system. So that within healthcare, that would be the giving of chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Relatively linear. This step, then this step, then this step, then this step. You can describe that in terms of a process. And if the people follow the process, you will get the end result that you wish. So the process becomes more important than people in that setting. The, the second group are the highly reliable. And an example of that would be an operation where there are many things that you can describe and set out in front and you can you can go this step, then that step, then this step. But within that, there has to be a there has to be enough flexibility for the surgeon to not just do it exactly as it says in the textbook, because every human's a little bit different. The problems are a wee bit different. Sometimes vessels are around the wrong way. Sometimes things are stuck to each other. Sometimes you have to completely change the sort of operation that you're doing. And what that means is in those settings that the processes are important, but people are equally important. So processes and people process and people equal each other in those high reliability systems and then you move into uh, the far end the, there's uh, there there's a sort of slightly more messy systems which are ultra adaptive and what we're looking for in those those environments are we looking for people to, are, to bend and flex because we might be able to describe individual processes as almost as pieces of strings, but it's like somebody then gets those pieces of strings and then scrunches them up into, into a ball and you have this sort of mass of people who cannot help but interact with each other. And my world in an, in an emergency department very much falls into that, into that category. And in those categories, what we rely upon are people bending and flexing and having, having the permission to bend and flex in order to get the right outcomes as much of the time as we possibly can. The problem with the problem with written down process for that is the situation is too complex to write down a protocol that is going to work all of the time. Instead, what we need are processes that say, we want to get to this point. You kind of choose how you're going to get there because, because the rest of it's going to fall apart. But you do it in the full recognition that other people are dependent upon you in different ways as well, and that you all need to work together and understand what's going on as well as you can, whilst trying to discharge your responsibilities. And I realise that sounds a little bit like going into battle when I start to describe that. There, there are tr tremendous similarities there. Um, I'll just give you a tiny example in my world. So I can be standing in the middle of the emergency department to UHCW and I might need to walk to our resuscitation bay because somebody's been brought in and folk are, sick, are, are, are worried about them and they're sick and I'm walking in that direction. Now, if you were to write that down as a process, I would log out my computer, turn around, walk through and that would be great. Except for I stand there I turn around, I usually forget to log out my computer, but it takes care of that for me, which is good. As I take a step forward, somebody will stop me and say, can you look at this ECG? 
and I will look quickly and I'll say it's this or I'll see if there's somebody else around who can look at it. But usually you've got a second, you have a look at it. Then I walk down and as I walk to recess, I will get stopped by another another person. Somebody might just want to say hello. Then I'll see a patient in a room who looks like they're in distress. I need to sort that out or at least make sure that somebody is coming to that. Somebody will come out of the blood gas analyzer room. They'll have a blood gas and they'll ask me to look at that as I'm going into recess. Then I'll get into recess. Then I have to get changed and having to get changed to put on full FFP3 PPE to go and see patients means I'm going to take another minute or two to do that. At which point people will still be coming through the door asking questions and then I will go and get to see that patient. But any one of those things, as I go to see that patient, might be somebody who is sicker than the patient that I am going to. And at any point, I might need to change my course and go in a different direction whilst making sure that somebody lets the guys in recess know that I'm not going to be coming. And the only thing that's predictable about that is that it is unpredictable. That's the only thing I can I can say about it. And trying to describe that becomes quite important because it, I think it's it's easy for people who are sitting three or four steps removed to look at somebody else's job and to think they understand it. When the reality of how we discharge our jobs in that ultra-adaptive fashion, and everybody has times when they are being ultra-adaptive in their job, that ultra-adaptive environment, it just doesn't lend itself towards process and people are far more important. And one of the things that um, one of the things that Suzette Woodward was telling me about ages ago is that she really regrets that we chose to use the expression never event within the NHS. And she regrets it because what happens is when something goes wrong, is it's a never event, it seems to become a witch hunt. And that doesn't allow us to get the learning from it because what as soon as things become witch hunts, people will do anything to avoid being hunted and they will hide things in order that they don't get the sort of treatment, actually, to be fair, the sort of treatment that you described you having on the bridge from the captain. And one thing I'd say about that is that, you know, he tried to put a line under it at the end of it, but we now know that that doesn't work. He's trying to put a line under it. He probably recognised he'd gone overboard with you. But you are going to have a big chunk of your brain intermittently reliving a set of emotions and then feeling that kind of anger that you didn't respond in the way that you could have done in the moment if your brain had been functioning, but your brain wasn't functioning because when he was doing that to you, when he was talking to you and making you feel like crap, your your working memory was being replaced by your uh, fight and flight response. It was being replaced by nipping, getting ready to have a fight and when that happened, you weren't the smart person that I know you to be. You were just, you were like a scared wee boy, I guess. And you don't just toss that aside when people leave, particularly people who are empathic. Uh, but for everybody, you just don't toss it aside. We ruminate, we try and make sense of it, and you can measure the impact it has on cognitive ability. You know, in the moment mild to moderate rudeness has about a 61% decrease in, in our working memory. But what you were describing was significantly worse than that, you know, and we know that people can be driven in those settings. I think you described it into a freeze state 
when you know the wave after wave after wave of negative behavior towards you hits you you start off trying to challenge you start off trying to make your case and eventually you don't feel like you can think you know in your world it's the emergency services but in my world it's more like fishing boats you know but they don't have those standard procedures and practices everything is more human centered but i suppose every every job every industry every work sectors has has this you know there are moments when when a, a very uh, ultra safe system can turn into a very human centered system it happens with, within the workspace all the time so you know that 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 workspace which i was in at one moment could be controlled through procedures in another moment it can't be so uh, that reminds me also of of so many accidents and incidents when one of the recent one was when uh, a pilot there were two pilots in the plane and the, the lady pilot was married to the guy so they were the husband and wife and at one stage of of of, of flying the pilot slaps the girl and just walks out of the cockpit and moments later chris you see that the lady uh, comes out of the cockpit crying also and the passengers are wondering who is inside the flight so we tend to think about of of uh, uh, cockpits as very ultra safe systems but then again you know when something like this happens it shakes any system i would say isn't it it's so interesting but but i'm i'm just conscious that we are coming towards the end of it and i just wanted to uh, i just so enjoyed this conversation because there's many very few people who have ex actually explored the relationship between a, a safe performance and giving people the dignity and 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 uh, respect that they deserve you you use the beautiful word civility uh, is there anything uh, in conclusion you want to say chris before we before we end this i just found it so so fascinating um, almost all of us have people that are direct reports to us so for almost all of us have a leadership role of some form. As well as doing the civility stuff, I, I end up doing some health and well-being things. So I ended up in the, the National Steering Group for Health and Well-Being in the NHS, which is a fascinating place, and I had to do an awful lot of reading. One of the things that I came across when I was doing that reading was that the, the single greatest determinant of whether or not somebody is going to be engaged at work and engagement and well-being are close bedfellows and they're also very closely related to performance. In fact, engagement's the number one predictor of uh, key performance indicators across all parts of the NHS. Um, the number one predictor of engagement is whether or not your boss is engaged. And that's interesting because that means that for me, the number one predictor of whether or not I'm going to be engaged at work is whether or not my boss is engaged. Now, I kind of don't really have a boss. It's a bit weird like that medicine once you get to my level. But that could be a bit frustrating that the person above me is determining how well I perform. But the really empowering thing here is that the person determining how well our direct reports perform is not my boss. It's me and how I am and who I am in the workplace really matters. When I am engaged, the chances are that my that the guys who are direct reports to me will be engaged. When they're engaged, they have better well-being, they enjoy work more, their performance is better. When I behave in ways that make them feel valued, their performance improves. It is very easy to slip into 
a state of mind that says, who am I and I don't matter. It's very easy, particularly when the organisation, whatever organisation you work for, particularly when the organisation makes you feel like you don't matter. But actually, the hierarchy goes like this, and someone's at the top of each bit of it, and how we behave towards each other matters across all the spectrum of performance. And when we treat each other, when we choose to treat each other in ways that value and respect us, then we create cultures which allow people to flourish. And, you know, flourishing always sounds like such a soft word. But my God, it's important. You want people to flourish at work. You want them to feel valued at work. And if they feel valued, if they feel prepared to give that discretionary effort, then they perform better. Their world is better and the performance of our teams and organisations is better. And that all comes from the act of choosing to treat people in ways that let them know that they are valued and respected. What did you think? When we choose to treat people with respect they deserve, we improve the performance of our teams and organisations. What a simple thing but how difficult it is getting these days to achieve it in practice. In fact, very few studies have explored the relationship between safety performance and treating people with the respect they deserve. Now, how many times I have seen that not only safety tools are used to dehumanize people and demean them, but also how dehumanizing people leads to poor safety and business performance. So the relationship exists both ways. I can never forget that day when a Filipino worker walked up to me and handed a chit that read, only officers on this ship are allowed internet and nothing for the crew, despite that we spend more time on the ships than the officers. Who decides who needs internet more, us or them? And when I asked the captain, he turned abusive and told me to shut up and get lost. Stories of people being abused on ships, being stripped of their dignity and respect, and particularly people in lower positions, is not so uncommon. And you know what's interesting? These are companies with good intentions. They spend thousands of dollars sending their people on training courses to make sure that they don't have navigation accidents. Now imagine creating this divide on ships in deciding between who gets internet and who doesn't. Actually, it's almost dehumanizing people and stri stripping them of their basic rights. And how is that ever going to improve safety performance? How do you tell that Filipino seaman that you have empowered him to speak up when you see another ship on the horizon? What makes us think that the seaman actually wakes up and brings his whole self to work in a safety critical environment? I leave you with those thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. 
If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website, novellas.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter, or my personal website, nipinanand.com. Thank you for listening.